My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Sakaya Thomas. One of the worst things that one group of human beings has ever done to another group of human beings was the transatlantic slave trade and the enslavement of Africans in the Americas. It produced unimaginable misery and death for millions of people, and various forms of wealth and benefit from the modest to the massive for many others. The theft of labor and lives was, along with the theft of land and lives from indigenous peoples in the Americas and attacks on peasants and on women in Europe, foundational to capitalism and therefore to what we understand as Canada today. It was a key nexus in the development of the material and cultural forms that have persisted and evolved over the centuries into the anti-black racism that looms so large in North America today and that so many black youth in the Black Lives Matter movement have in the last couple of years become the latest in a long line of generations to protest and resist. Different strands within this long black freedom struggle have, over the decades and centuries, framed the struggle in a variety of ways. One way of thinking about it, one way of focusing struggle, one way of shaping demands, that has been gaining increasing visibility in the last 15 years is that of reparations. Though there is plenty of conversation about the details of what exactly reparations might entail, the essence of the movement for reparations for the slave trade and slavery is a recognition of the massive harms done and resources taken historically, and of the continuing impacts and related ongoing injustices today. It is a demand that resources which have accumulated over centuries in centers of wealth and power in Europe and North America be returned to the descendants of those whose enslavement made that wealth possible, and who as a consequence experience ongoing immiseration. And it is a demand that the ongoing social relations that continue to organize harm and suffering and premature death into black lives, from the very architecture of the current global order to the much more immediate and local, be transformed in just directions. A key moment in the global growth of the movement for reparations was the United Nations World Conference Against Racism held in Durban, South Africa in 2001. This meeting was a rare chance for African and African-descended people from all parts of the world to meet and discuss their experiences and struggles. Strong sentiment in favor of a push for reparations emerged from those conversations, and a number of organizations were founded to help pursue this goal. One such organization was the Global African Congress, of which Sakaya Thomas is the current chair. Thomas talks with me about the history of slavery and the slave trade, both globally and in the Canadian context, about the ways in which that legacy is not just of the past, but is very much actively present in shaping the North America of today, about the global movement for reparations, and about what that looks like in Canada. We spoke by Skype to phone from Toronto. My name is Sakaya Thomas. I'm the current chair of the Global African Congress. The Global African Congress is an organization that came out of the 
United Nations World Conference Against Racism that was held in Durban, South Africa. One of the primary focus of the conference was reparation. So coming out of that conference, Africans and African descent throughout the world decided that we would pursue the reparation agenda and continue to do so ever since. So our primary focus is on uh, reparation, reparation for the crime of the transatlantic slave trade, slavery, and descendant form of atrocity that encompass slavery ever since. So that is forced segregation, uh, racism, and so on and so forth. My past, it's a very simple one. I came to Canada from Jamaica in 1972 to go to school. And when I got to Canada, I was quite surprised to encounter the kind of racial injustice that exists in Canada. I thought that racism was more of a European phenomenon or an American phenomenon than a Canadian one, so to speak. And then, of course, having had first-hand experience, one began to pursue some kind of a social justice agenda. And in doing so, one begins to look for a whole host of reasons why that is so. And of course, one knowledge is broadened with respect to the scientific form of racism, how it comes out of the transatlantic slave trade and slavery and so on and so forth. And obviously, having understand the scientific nature of racism and how it's linked to the slave trade, then I think part of repairing the damage has to be the whole question of reparation. I suppose it's fair to say that greed could not have justified the level of inhumanity and the barbarism that existed in slavery. And therefore, racism had to be created to justify that kind of barbarism. And one of the consequences of that is the total absence from history of slavery in many parts of the world, including Canada, where when one looked at the history book, it's very rarely, up until quite recently, you'd find any kind of work indicating the extent to which Canada was involved in enslavement of African people. So with the elimination of that kind of history, one is not surprised in many instances to find out that many Canadians are not aware of did in fact participate in enslavement of African people as other part of the British Empire. And Canada prided itself for being a refuge for the people coming from the United States who escaped in slavery, and that is true. And Canada had to be congratulated for that, in the sense that it provided safe haven for the people escaping slavery. But that is not to say when the people arrived here, for example, it was a total liberation that they were so liberated and therefore there were no form of oppression. That part of their own lived experience with racism tend to be absent from the history book. That is a fact. But the other fact is that Canadians enslave African people, and that is largely absent from the history book. It wasn't until quite recently that historians have begun to even dig up, for example, the law that so-called legalized slavery in Ontario and other parts of Canada. So by not recording that in history, it's not a strange phenomenon to discover that many Canadians are not aware of Canadian enslavement of African people. And so that had to be explained that had to be part of the reparation process where the history book had to be corrected and the history be laid out. People need to understand that African people were human before the slave trade and that the slave trade, in fact, tried to make us subhuman beings as part of the justification for the kind of cruelty that went on the plantation system or went hand in hand with slavery itself. Let's look at the role that Canada play, for example, at the United Nations World Conference Against Racism. As I mentioned earlier, Canada have always 
been given high praises for providing a safe haven for the African-American escape in slavery in the United States. And so, again, because it's not well known of Canada ruling and enslaving African people, at the United Nations, while the Europeans and the Americans were trying to get reparation off the table, for the first time, as I understand it, that they formed a group in the United Nations called Western Europe and others, and the Western Europe and others were, for example, European countries and the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. When you looked at the composition of all those countries, predominantly white countries, and Canada played a leading role in making the case that reparations should be at the table, and that was in keeping with Western Europe, Canada, and the United States, get its way at the United Nations as they have historically. And so they thought they could do that by getting reparation off the table. And Canada pursued that line to say reparation should be off the table. Then after they were defeated, they pursued a line to say the slave trade and slavery was legal. And it is interesting when they pursue that line, it's legal, that you begin to see why they had to create the kind of racism and the lingering effect as we know it today, both in terms of the sociology, the psychology of the society, the economic deprivation of one group over the other, and how easy it is, for example, for the structure, and by the structure I mean the social structure that was created in society to enforce slavery, the lingering effect of that, the psychological lingering effect of that, the fact that black people, African people, still have to be defending themselves and demanding that we are human beings and should be treated equitably. So there's a direct linkage between the slave trade and enslavement and the racial oppression and today's society in the sense that because of the dehumanization process and the socialization of that process, the incalculation of that process in people's psyche, black folks today still have to be saying, hey, you know what, we're equal just like any other human being, that in fact slavery did not make us subhuman. We were human beings before slavery. The subjugation of black folks is a consequence of slavery. And so one has to make the historical linkage with that past and the contemporary form of anti-black racism in particular. So that is the situation. But to a larger extent, at the World Conference Against Racism, one discovered where the descendants of enslaved Africans throughout the Americas, in the Dutch-speaking Caribbean, for example, and Latin America, in the Spanish-speaking countries of the Americas, all linguistic groups, came together for one single purpose, and that is for reparation. And reparation is a very broad concept in terms of compensation for the crime itself, repairing the damage, that is, looking at the history that has been totally absent from the history book, to look at the actual practices that went on the plantation, look at the massive transfer of wealth from the Caribbean and Latin America to Europe, looking at the unpaid wages for the people in the United States, for example. And more importantly, looking at the lingering effect of the slave trade and today's poverty, today's deprivation or dispossess of the people of African descent throughout the world. So that, I think, laid the foundation to provide a good understanding why reparation is absolutely necessary and why I think there should be a greater understanding in the society in general as to why reparation is so absolutely necessary. Tell me about the conversations in which it was decided to use reparations as a frame for this struggle against anti-black racism, as opposed to the other ways that the struggle could be framed. Why focus on reparations? I suppose other things have been tried before. Other methods of looking at it have been tried, but in a very real sense, 
This was the first time the international community, and by the international community, I mean people of African descent, African countries, and the West were actually meeting to discuss it. Although slavery was abolished, there was the Emancipation Act in 1834, we have never come together collectively as a group to discuss it. And so that's why it was important. It was important to look at reparation because remember, even in 1834, when in the British Empire, certainly in the case of the Caribbean, we have the data to demonstrate this, but when slavery was abolished in 1834, at the time, the slave owner was paid reparation, not the enslaved people. So the oppressor, the people who perpetuate the crime against humanity, was compensated for, for what? For the loss of their property. So we as the Africans who were being enslaved was not seen again as human beings, they were seen as property. And so that reconciliation, that coming together of recognizing that past was of paramount importance to the people of African descent. And so that's why reparation became the main focus. One ought to also understand the psychological dimension of the oppression and its lingering effect. One also ought to understand the economic disposition of black people. One also has to understand the underdevelopment that is taking place in places like Latin America and the Caribbean. One also had to understand how the world is currently structured, like, for example, international institutions like the World Bank, who sits in the World Bank, the IMF, who makes what decision, what are the trade agreements. All of these structures that has its genesis in the slave trade continue in, to manifest itself in different ways in today's society. So reparation It is not simply a question of paying compensation for the past crime, but it's also making adjustment to the current world order, looking at globalization, how globalization is structured and its linkage with that past, and the need to transform those institutions into a more equitable one. So on one hand, like for those of us in Canada, it is about looking at the black community here. At some other level, in the international community, it's also looking at how the world is currently organized and operate. Tell me more about the Global African Congress. After the Royal Conference, it was one of those historical phenomenon that many of us who participated in that conference were so overwhelmed. And it was extremely emotional and difficult to meet somebody from Brazil or to meet some from Ecuador, to meet people from Colombia who were saying the same thing and discovering the similarities with our conditions in Canada, our conditions in the Caribbean, English-speaking Caribbean. It was an amazing phenomenon just to see that it's almost as if to say all of us were living in the same geographical space at the same time, having such similar experience. And so we formed a natural alliance then and decided that we must continue our work. The conference is 2001. In 2002, we had a conference in Barbados. The government of Barbados hosts African-African descendant conference. And there are several conferences. So up until quite recently, as perhaps you know that the government of the Caribbean, CARICOM, have established a reparation commission and decided to pursue reparation from all of the former colonial masters. So all of the Caribbean countries, Spanish, English, Dutch-speaking Caribbean, came together in CARICOM and began to pursue the cause of reparation. In the United States, that was one of the leading proponents of reparation. After 9-11, the reparation movement took a hit. It took a hit in the sense that the aftermath of 9-11, we see a whole host of social justice movements just went underground and in some cases just died. 
sometime this year, actually, we saw the rebirth, which we could call the rebirth of the reparation movement, in the sense that the United States that was a leading proponent of reparation is now piggybacking of the success that was made in the Caribbean by forming an American reparation commission to, to begin to pursue reparation across the United States, very much like how CARICOM was doing it. And so those of us in Canada decide, yes, it's time for us to also launch Canadian Reparation Commission to continue to pursue the cause of reparation internally in Canada, notwithstanding the governmental position. Not that we expect that government is going to come on board and saying, yes, we need to provide you with some kind of a justice. As it is, the Canadian government has many legislation, many laws that says they protect all of us as citizens. But one could examine those laws, do some analysis of those laws, and see to what extent the laws apply equally, both in the communal justice system, in employment, in housing, in a whole host of areas. When one begins to examine the legislative and legal framework in Canada, one would recognize that it's, should I say, uh, it's an excellent law and people, but in practice, it's the opposite. In the Canadian context, the first phase of our work was just to try to do a lot of educational work, a lot of educational work around it. As I said earlier, the slave trade and slavery in Canada was very much absent out of the history book, and so a large number of descendants of African people themselves never really understood it. Many of the progressives, for example, European Canadians, just never understood it, have never heard about it, and they have no knowledge of all of this history. So our first strategy was to do as much public education as we could, math education. And to that extent, we have had some success. For example, newsletters, movies, public lectures, public intellectuals from across the United States, the Caribbean, Europe. We have activities like in Toronto, in Montreal, in Nova Scotia, newspaper articles. Using the internet quite a lot, we circulate articles that is coming from different jurisdictions, scholarly articles mass public education articles. So we have done substantially quite a bit of work. We also continue to pursue it at the United Nations. We make presentation to the United Nations. At the UN, there was what was called the Durban Plus Five. That's the tradition of the United Nations World Conference that five years after the conference, they will make an assessment in terms of assessing what progress was made with respect to the resolution coming out of that conference. And so we have pursued at the United Nations, and we have pursued the issue of Canada still not implementing any meaningful program to address racism, not implementing any meaningful program to look at what they decided that they will do at the World Conference. And so we pursue the type of activity locally by doing math education. We pursued in standing, working in solidarity with other people on the continent of Africa and in the Caribbean. And as I said, we have done some work at the United Nations to explain to the folks at the UN and primarily the UN Human Rights Commission. That's some of the work that we have been doing in Canada. Tell me about the range of reactions you've gotten to the public education work and to the other aspects of the work in the Canadian context. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, the range of reaction is from total hostility to telling us that we're crazy to one of love, you know? <laughs> it's a vast array of, of reaction. We have had a lot of pushback, for example, from government. 
I remember, I think it's somebody from external affairs, once said to myself and some other people when we were meeting that we in Canada are to be very, very happy that we have a decent standard of living and we just need to look at what's happening to black folks in Uganda, I think the country she tried to illustrate. That we need to be very, very happy that we're living in this country. So we have had that kind of a ridiculous kind of a reaction, right? In other words, we shouldn't complain because we have it well in Canada. So we have had that. We have had hopeful activity from other people as well. We had a situation with the Canadian government. Some of the bureaucrats denied that the slave trade should be classified as a crime against humanity because it was legal. And we have had a tremendous amount of sympathy from, for example, church groups, trade union, organizations, people who did not know anything about the slave trade and would sit down and thank us tremendously for helping to engage in an educational process. So we have had quite a wide range of reactions. And what about the range of reactions from and the range of conversations within black communities in the Canadian context? The black community is there, there as well. It's the same kind of range from sympathy to one that surprised me all the time is that there are some people who feel that if we keep talking about reparation, we are just going to invite white people to be more repressive. You know, there's a, that kind of ridiculous argument to have heard that by discussing this issue, we are inviting hostility. We have reaction that's saying slavery exists elsewhere, but never exists in Canada. So we, we have had that kind of experience in the black community. We've had experience in the black community that says, well, you know what, pursuing reparations, we should go elsewhere, go back to Africa to pursue reparations. All kinds of reactions that it's in keeping generally with the internalization of racism. It's in keeping with what people think the popular institutions or the popular sociocultural of the society is, that we are going against the grain by raising reparations. So we have had that negative response. But overall, I would like to emphasize the positive where a lot of people are in support of it. I mean, you'd have, for example, people in the teaching profession saying, if nothing else, they want the history book to be corrected. Because by the history book corrected, they think it begins to lay the foundation where a lot of people would understand themselves. A lot of the, especially young people who are running afoul of the law, if they begin to see themselves in a more positive light, that could be the beginning of a repair process. So, by and large, I would say we've had more positive response than negative. Is it your sense, in the Canadian context or in the U.S. context, that the new energy and the new upsurge of mostly youth under the banner of Black Lives Matter is creating new openings to talk about reparations? I think so. Just look at the example of Canon West's performance at the closing ceremony of the Panam Games that there was a massive amount of reaction, negative reaction to him. And I, I think in large part, the negative reaction to him has to do with, here's an individual who's very proud of who he is, stand up showing confidence. He's not questioning who and, and, and what he is as a human being. I think that's part of the negative reaction to him. So, yes, Black Lives Matter, I think, will give some positive, certainly very, very, very positive outcome to the reparation movement. As we know, in recent times, we could see how the social media have been able to really expose police corruption and police violence. And we're happy to see that young people have decided that it's time for them to take a stand at some of these injustices. Many of them certainly recognize that this is linked to the reparation movement. It's part of the repair that needs to be done. 
So you were talking earlier about how the reparations movement aims not only to get compensation for past harms that linger into the present, but also to transform current aspects of the social world that continue to reproduce the injustices of anti-black racism. So the struggles of Black Lives Matter might be one example of that at the very immediate local level of racist police violence. Talk a little bit more about what that might look like at the level of global institutions. Stephen Lewis, I forget the title of his book. I think it's a massive lecture. He gave an excellent overview of how the IMS has ravaged Africa, how the devastating impact of the IMS policy has been in Africa. And that is because, again, those institutions are still governed by the West, and there's no democracy in those institutions, in the sense that, as we have even seen recently with the situation in Greece, where a group of countries saying, we are going to impose these conditions. So we have known what the institutions like the IMF have done. Institutions like the World Court, I find it amazing that the World Court have continuously pursuing wronging on the part of African leaders, and very little have been done on the part of some of these countries like the United States or uh, European countries, for that matter, who have committed the kind of atrocities. So we're going to have to look at these institutions and look at the unevenness, the inequality that is still built into the structures of these institutions. At the United Nations Security Council, for example, why is it that the countries who dominate Africa, who participated in the slave trade, we know that their wealth is built on the backs of enslaved African people, that they are the people who turn around now to tell us about justice. I think it's highly improbable that they should have any moral authority and the issue of justice until they themselves have come to terms with what they have done. So the whole notion of unjust enrichment, we have to address those questions. United Nations Security Council, for example, it's an institution that needs immediate reform. The transfer of technology, who control what in this part of the world, need immediate reform. So these international institutions, the reparation movement must begin to look at these bilateral relationships that exist between the periphery and the so-called developed world. What's coming up in the next year or so, say, for the Global African Congress and for the reparations movement more broadly in the Canadian context? We are in the process of planning for the establishment of the Canadian Reparation Commission. To give it some kind of legitimacy, we have to look at representation from right across the country, especially those historic African-Canadian community like Windsor, Marlborough, Nova Scotia, and Patterson and Ontario. We need the active involvement in this community coming together and mapping out a strategy, what will be the priority to pursue. Different people in different regions begin to share experience and what they're looking for. So, for example, CARICOM is a 10-point program. We have also had an input in those 10-point programs. So we modify the program and tailor it to the Canadian context. So at this moment, we are in the planning stage of looking at the Canadian Reparation Commission. At that point, then we will continue to pursue it. You have been listening to my interview with Sakaya Thomas, the current chair of the Global African Congress. We've been talking about the global struggle for reparations for the transatlantic slave trade and slavery, and particularly how that is happening in the Canadian context. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, 
or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link marked Radio. That's TalkingRadical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.